0: Well, hello, friends. You're listening to the Capital City Christian Church podcast. I'm Chris, the Communications Director at Cap City. And if this is your first time listening or you just want to say hi, you can email me at hello at capitalcitychristian.org. Last week, we started a series about the things that made Jesus mad. Growing up, you might have gotten the impression that Jesus was always soft spoken and never would have gotten angry, and certainly wouldn't have let anyone see his anger. But that's not the case. We can look in the Bible and see all kinds of instances where Jesus was truly angry. One of the things that we know made Jesus mad is prejudice, judging people based on their race, age, gender, class, occupation, life situation, or anything else. And even though we all have prejudices of our own, we should hate prejudice too. Let's look at how and why prejudice made Jesus mad. Here's our senior minister, Dr. Stephen Doc Pattison. Weird Fourth of July nationally, isn't it? It was a weird fourth. Not just that so many of the normal 4th of July festivities were canceled because of the pandemic. And it's not just that so many of the people who ordinarily cluster together and play together on the 4th didn't this year. Because they were warned not to. Basically, it's because our country is so troubled right now. So polarized, isn't it? And a lot of people don't want to celebrate the red, white, and blue. Gallup poll released on Thursday said that American pride has reached a new low. E pluribus unum. Seen that before? It's on your coins. It's on your dollar bills. Out of many, one. Out of many, one. We don't feel very one right now, do we? We're very, very divided. Polarized over so many things. And it seems like... It's getting so much worse. I mean, it was climate change, the environment, Second Amendment and guns, healthcare and immigration, big government versus individual freedoms, even the perpetual struggles between the young and the old. Those divisions seem almost tame now. Pandemic, quarantine, masks, people are taking sides and they're getting mad. Multiplied by racial tensions. Black Lives Matter, demonstrations, talk of reparations, statues being torn down. Doesn't feel very e pluribus unum right now, does it? Which makes for a pretty weird fourth. So, maybe for us, Jesus followers, it's a perfect time for us to talk about this polarization a bit from God's perspective if we can. Especially the prejudice and the bigotry that so often fuel it. And following Jesus, what's that mean? Maybe it's a critical time for us Jesus followers to us talk about prejudice, bigotry, and where God and God following fits into this. Because we want to do life with God for God, God's way. You see, bottom line, I don't care what our culture thinks we should think and say and do. I do care a whole lot about what God wants us to think and say and do. Now, guys, we're not born prejudiced, but it grows in us so easily. Our brains are actually wired to kind of put people into categories, to group things together. Old people, young people, those in between, right? White people, black people, those in between. Rich, poor, those in between. Girls, boys, short, tall, skinny, not so skinny, handsome, not handsome, smart, not so smart, athletic, klutzes. We put people in boxes, which is okay, if that's as far as it goes. But then we start treating some boxes as better than others. Or maybe someone in that tall box hurt my feelings, so I don't like anybody in that tall box. Someone in that rich box messed with someone that I care about, so I'm suspicious of everybody in that box. Guys, every single box has jerks in it, right? Including our own. But we tend to tolerate the jerks who are in our boxes and act like the sins of anyone in their box infects everyone else. We start valuing some kinds of people more than we value others because of the boxes we put them in. Perfect example. Perfect example. I met a Duke fan one time who was a jerk. So all Duke fans are jerks, right? How many people agree? All right, bunch of prejudiced people in this room. <laughs> I looked up prejudice in Wikipedia. I know there's way more scholarly resources out there, but interesting starting point. Here's what it says. It says, prejudice is an affective feeling, which means it's about your attitudes, your emotions, and your feelings towards a person based on their perceived group membership. In other words, what box they're in for you. It says the word is often used to refer to a preconceived, usually unfavorable, Evaluation of another person based on their political affiliation, their sex, their gender, their beliefs, values, social class, age, disability, religion, sexuality, race, ethnicity, language, nationality, beauty, occupation, education, criminality, sports team affiliation, or some other personal characteristic. Holy cow. Covers a bunch, doesn't it? Which means, according to this definition, Democrats and Republicans can be prejudiced against one another, right? Men and women, gays and straights, rich and the poor, old and the young, crossfitters and the couch potatoes, can all be prejudiced. Blue collar versus white collar, black versus white, Christian versus Muslim, American versus Russian or Chinese, whatever, we can both be prejudiced. We don't usually use the word prejudice in those contexts, but by this definition, just starting here, I think you'd probably agree that most all of us, if not all of us, battle prejudices, right? I do, do you? And it's not just the differences, that we see the differences between us, I mean it's not wrong to see that we're different, and it's not that the differences between us don't matter, because oftentimes they do. The word itself comes from Latin, pre, which means before, and judge. It means to prejudge. And the word prejudice is often used when people dislike another group of people who are different from them, whether because of their skin color, that's racial prejudice, their religion or their lack of it, which is a religious prejudice, or their nationality or whatever. Whatever. Sometimes, prejudices lead to discrimination, hatred, and even war. And listen, guys, here's the key for this morning. Sometimes, for us Jesus followers, our prejudices lead us to worse than any of those things. Now, I think most everybody would admit that the dark side of prejudice is a serious issue right now in our country. Prejudice, bigotry, intolerance, discrimination... Those are cultural sins that we're battling right now. For some, they're the primal cultural sins right now. It's weird how most everybody tries to convince themselves that it's someone else's sin. Those who disagree with me, those who don't see what I see, they're the prejudiced ones, the bigoted ones, the narrow-minded, the intolerant ones. We all have our fingers pointed at someone else who's worse, we think, even we Jesus followers. And too often, the solution to prejudice and bigotry our world chooses is to crush anyone who disagrees. Force them to see it your way, right? Repress the regressive. If you can't convince them of their error, hush them if you can. It doesn't work, does it? No, I suppose it can for a while until those who are hushed get enough power to start pushing back. But guys, there has to be a better way. And there is a better way. And I'm not really talking to people who are outside of the church this morning. I'm not interested in their solutions right now. I want to see if God has any guidance. And as Jesus followers, I think we need to get very, very quiet and listen. Because a whole lot of us, probably all of us, fight a plethora of different prejudices. And I think that the dangers are way bigger than discrimination and hatred and even war. And I do believe that there is a lasting, can be no lasting solution. There can be no lasting solution unless God is in the middle of it. Do you believe that? Now, we get glimpses of God's heart throughout the New Testament. And here are the words of Jesus. This comes from the prayer of Jesus on the night before he died. I mean, these are last words to us. Did you know that Jesus prayed for you? He did, specifically in me. He says, I'm not just praying for these disciples, the 12. I'm praying for all those who will ever believe in me through their message. That's us. He's praying for us. He says, I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, so that the world will believe that you sent me. Talk about e pluribus unum. So that the world will believe that you sent me, which seems to mean to me that our misbehavior driven by our prejudices can hinder the world from believing in Jesus. What obstruct, obstruct God's grace. And that's what makes Jesus mad. Whenever anyone hinders access to the Father, it makes him mad. Remember that stuff from last week if you were here? And then here's the Apostle Paul. Paul says, in Christ's family, there can be no division into Jew and non-Jew, slave and free, male and female, amongst you are all equal, that is, we're all in a common relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't you get it, Paul says, in Christ there really is, e pluribus unum. And then there's a magnificent scene in the book of Revelation, all those surrounding the throne of God, are singing this song to God. You are worthy, Jesus. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it because you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation, black, white, young, old, rich, poor, American, Russian, Chinese, whatever. You have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God and they will reign on the earth. E pluribus unum, someday, God says. You'll see. It will be so. So, apparently, by these definitions, we can be prejudiced about someone because of their politics, their gender, their beliefs, their values, their age, their social class, their disability, their race, their sexuality, their occupation, their money, their looks, their education, their past, their sports team. If that's so... Will you admit to having prejudices? Will you? I've got them. Unless you're weird, you do too. Listen, it is not that good people have no prejudices. It's that God-honoring people refuse to allow their prejudices to drive their thoughts, their actions, and their words It's that we Jesus followers refuse to allow our prejudices to throw a wedge between anybody and God's love. Good men and good women will admit their prejudices when they finally see them. Good men and good women will go to war against those prejudices. And then we keep doing the right thing, keep doing the loving thing. We keep treating people right until God transforms our hearts. Because transforming a heart is a God-sized job. That's why there can be no solution unless God is in the center of it. Now, for a whole boatload of reasons, prejudice and bigotry have been around since the beginning. They were real issues in both the Old and the New Testament. Early Jesus followers had their prejudices, and sometimes those prejudices led the early Jesus followers to some really dark places, and it made Jesus mad. One of the worst prejudices of that time was the prejudice and bigotry of the Jews towards the Samaritans and the Samaritans towards the Jews. These guys had hated each other for centuries, about 500 years, in part because the Samaritans were biracial. At one time, the Jews actually destroyed the Samaritan temple. It'd be like going to the next town and burning down their church even though the Samaritans worshiped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like the Jews did. Later on in retaliation, the Samaritans snuck into Jerusalem right before the Passover festival when all the pilgrims would be there, and they threw some bones into the temple to defile the place so the Jews couldn't keep the Passover. Both of those provocations are worth killing for in that world, in their eyes. Now, there's kind of a funny scene, if you have a dark sense of humor, kind of like I do, kind of a funny scene in the Gospel of Luke. It's at the end of Jesus' ministry. In fact, Jesus is actually on his way to Jerusalem to die. They stop at a Samaritan village on the way, but when the Samaritans heard that Jesus was heading for Jerusalem, they told him he's not welcome because he's heading to Jerusalem. And it says that James and John, two of his disciples, when they learned what was going on, they said, Master do you want us to call down a bolt of lightning out of heaven and incinerate them for you? Jesus, can we kill them? Jesus, can we kill them for you? How much would you have to hate somebody to ask a question like that of Jesus? So it's no wonder that Jesus didn't want these disciples around for one of the most remarkable encounters in all of the gospel stories. John one of his apostles, tells us that Jesus was going from Judea in the south up to Galilee in the north. And it says that he had to. He had to go through Samaria, which is not quite true geographically. Okay, Now, I know Samaria is right between Judea and Galilee, and so it's the most direct route. But because the Samaritans lived in Samaria, go figure, a lot of the Jews didn't take that route. They would take the longer way around on the other side of the Jordan River so they didn't have to pass through the Samaritan towns. That'd be kind of like I hated Shelby County so much, right, that I refused to go through Shelby Valley County to get to Louisville. Now, you can get to Louisville without going through Shelby County, but it's going to be a little bit awkward, right? So Jesus didn't really have to go through Samaria geographically. Which means that if he had to go through Samaria, there was something else going on. Either he has something to give to the Samaritans, or he has something to teach to his disciples. Maybe a little bit of both. It says, eventually he came to a Samaritan village of Sychar, right about here, somewhere in that ballpark, near a field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus was tired from the long journey, so he sat down wearily, it says, next to the well, about noontime. The time of day is important. You've got to make a note of that. Verse 7. Soon a Samaritan woman came along to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. Now he was alone at the time because of his disciples. All of his disciples apparently had gone into the village to buy some food. Now guys, there's a lot going on here. First of all, it says the disciples... All of the disciples had gone to the village to buy food. And you wonder why. How many disciples does it take to carry the food back for lunch? Right? Are they scared? Because it's Samaria. And if they are scared, they're going to leave Jesus by the well alone? Which is weird, unless Jesus didn't want them around. I wonder whether Jesus sent them all away because he needed some time alone. And not because he needed the time alone for himself. Second, back then, one of the disciples likely was carrying a bucket, probably some kind of a leather bag that they would drop into the well and pull some water out so they could all have a drink. And the disciples leave Jesus, who's bone-tired, next to the well with no bucket. Now, either they're brain dead, or Jesus knew exactly what was going on, and he was just setting something up. I think he's setting something up. And then this woman comes along. She shows up, a Samaritan woman alone, and it's noon Which is significant. Back then, that's not normal. Back then, the women would go to the well early in the morning, or they'd go to the well late in the day when the heat had subsided. And to be decent, they would always go to the well together, not alone. Besides, the water jars are heavy, and it's a whole lot easier if there's someone with you in order to lift that jar up into your head so you can carry it back into town. So this Samaritan woman shows up alone at noon. Apparently, she either didn't want to be around the other women or the other women didn't want to be around her, right? And when she shows up, Jesus breaks the rules, several of them actually. When Jesus saw her coming, protocol would have said that he should have backed off about 20 feet so she could get to the well without coming too close to him. See, social distancing is not new, right? Good men didn't even, they didn't get too close to any woman except perhaps their wives, especially if there's no one around. That would look bad. And then Jesus actually talks to her. Good men don't talk to women like that. Good men back then barely talked to their own wives. And she's not just a woman, she's a Samaritan woman. And she's not just a Samaritan woman, she looks like an outcast because she's there at noon alone, the kind of woman a good man should avoid. And then Jesus asks her for a drink. Doesn't ask her to pour some water into a cup where he can get the cup and drink from it. It looks like he asks for a drink from her bucket, which isn't right back then good jewish men considered all samaritan women women unclean the mishnah one of the jewish books of that time calls samaritan women perpetually unclean menstruants from the cradle is what they called them so if jesus drinks from her bucket he becomes unclean according to their rules so she's surprised she's surprised on steroids no kidding for Jews refuse to have anything to do with Samaritans. So she says to Jesus, you're a Jew. Yeah, I'm a Samaritan. Why are you asking me for a drink? On the other hand, I kind of wonder, what would it feel like if you were that outcast and someone treats you normally, like you matter? What would it feel like to have someone actually see you Not your color, not your gender, not your politics, not your past. They all actually just look and see you. So Jesus and the woman go back and forth for a while. Jesus messes with her head a little bit by offering to give her some water, the kind of water that he says, once you drink from it, you'll never, ever, ever be thirsty again. And she's intrigued. And then Jesus says this, it almost sounds rude. Jesus says, go get your husband. And she's like, I don't have one. And Jesus says, I know. You've had five of them. The guy you're living with now, you're not married. Holy cow. Almost sounds like Jesus is calling her out, kind of humiliating her, doesn't it? What's weird is that's not how she takes it. What does she see in Jesus? Now, I've got to tell you guys, I've always been a bit prejudiced towards this woman. I really have. I've always assumed that she was a wanton woman. She's out there alone, middle of the day. She's clearly an outcast. Shacking up with a guy in that world would have been considered grossly immoral after five previous marriages. What a cow. My prejudices caused me to overlook a few things. First, she lived in a culture where a woman could not take care of herself. I'm sorry, it's just the way it was. She didn't have a husband or a family to take care of her. She was hosed, unless perhaps she started selling her body, which apparently she didn't do, because she'd been married five times. And this next piece is so obvious. I don't know why I missed it. She lived in a culture where a woman could not initiate a divorce. She hadn't divorced five husbands. She's not like some Hollywood tart who keeps flitting from guy to guy. She has been rejected and she has been dumped five times. How crushing is that? Why? I don't know. Maybe she couldn't have kids. In that wor- world, a woman's value was linked to her ability to have sons. Maybe that's why husbands kept dumping her. Or maybe she's just a bad judge of men. You've seen that happen before, haven't you? Desperate for relationships. She goes from one jerk to the next jerk, getting more and more scarred after each failure. So maybe she's not as much immoral as she is a woman who desperately, desperately needs grace. And maybe instead of looking into the eyes of someone who judged her this time, maybe she was looking into the eyes of someone who understood her and loved her anyway. Maybe what she saw in his eyes was something like, you poor child, how desperately you need some God. Isn't that what you'd hope to see if you looked into Jesus' eyes? I would. Now, did you know, did you know that we will never break down the barriers that we create between God and the children that He loves until we get past our prejudices? See, we jump to conclusions. We make value judgments. We see people through the eyes of our own emotions, the eyes of our own experiences, rather than trying to see them through God's eyes. And whenever we do that, we hinder them from tasting grace. We become roadblocks between people and God, and that makes Jesus mad. It's no wonder he didn't want the disciples around for a while. He had some grace to do. So Jesus is like, I I get where you are where you are doesn't matter. I have something for you. I've got this living water for you. He's he's saying something like this. I know you're a woman. I know you're a Samaritan woman. I know your past and your present living arrangements, and I know that makes people avoid you and you avoid people, but I'm not like that, and God is not like that. Did you know that God knows absolutely every detail of your life, every detail of your thoughts, every little detail that you try to keep hidden from the good people around you? And he values you this much anyway. Jesus and this Samaritan woman, we don't even know her name. They go on to have a discussion about some of the things that Jews and Samaritans fought about back then. And Jesus very, very gently corrects some of her other misperceptions of God. And <laughs> then he actually reveals himself to her. He tells her who he really is. He is the Christ of God. And she's in. And here's when the scene challenges me, what happens next, because now, right then, the disciples come back from town. We enter the scene. And we catch Jesus talking to this woman, the Samaritan woman, and we're scandalized. I would have been. I mean, back then, talking with any woman was considered a a waste of time. In fact, they even debated whether you should teach the Bible to your girls And this woman wasn't Jesus' wife. It wasn't his daughter. Some woman he didn't know. And she was a Samaritan. She was an outcast Samaritan. It was obvious, alone at the well in the middle of the day. Don't you get it, Jesus? Don't you see what this looks like? And I wonder again why, why all the disciples needed to go get lunch. In fact, I kind of suspect that Jesus wanted them gone. Because think about it. When this... Samaritan woman looked into Jesus eyes what did she see and what if I was standing next to Jesus what if I was standing behind Jesus and she looked into my eyes what would she see would she have found the same grace and would she have risked exposing herself to Jesus with our standing there watching If she had seen the prejudice in our eyes, the bigotry in our eyes, would she have risked Jesus? If Jesus is trying to love on someone against whom you harbor some prejudice, would he send you out for lunch so you wouldn't get in the way of grace? Someone against whom you harbor some prejudice were to enter this room for worship, would Jesus hold his breath if they chose some chair near you? Or would that guest see his eyes in us? Maybe. Maybe when honorary Jesus followers get out of the way, more people will experience our Jesus. Verse 28, the woman left her water jar beside the well and she ran back to the village. She told everybody, come and see a man who's told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? And the people came streaming from the village to see him. And it says that many, many Samaritans from that village believed in Jesus because of what the woman had said. He told me everything I did. What a lady. What an incredibly courageous lady. She embraces God's love and then tells everyone about his grace, even if it made her look bad. An amazing lady. So here it is. Search me, O God, and know my heart. He does. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. He knows. Point out anything in me that offends you, God. Point out anything in me that offends you, God. Not that offends me, that offends you, God. Not that offends the people around me, that offends you, God. Because I need that, because I want you to lead me along the path of everlasting life it's a dangerous prayer isn't it dangerous prayer right out of the psalms search me god know my heart test me know my anxious thoughts point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along a path of everlasting life because sometimes guys we don't see our sins we don't see them I mean, sometimes I can see and I can admit and I can unbattle some of my prejudices that I know are God dishonoring. But, guys, I need God to point out what I don't see that offends him. Because I do want to do life with God, for God, God's way, and I want you to as well. Do you? I don't know how you learned your prejudices, and bottom line, I don't care. What I do care about is what you do with them now, because you're a Jesus follower now. Because way too many of our prejudices build walls between God's precious kids and God's amazing grace. And that ticks God off. So, search our hearts, God. Know our hearts. Test us and know our anxious thoughts and point out anything in us that offends you, that makes you mad because we want to follow you down a path to eternal life. You see, it's not that good people have no prejudices. Of course we do. It's that God-honoring people refuse to allow their prejudices to drive their thoughts, their words, and their actions. It's that we, Jesus followers, refuse to allow our prejudices to throw a wedge between anybody and God's amazing love and grace. It's that we admit our prejudice when we finally see it. And we go to war against that prejudice. And then we keep on doing the right thing. We keep treating people right till God transforms our hearts and theirs. Because guys, mending hearts is a God-sized job, which is why no solution to this thing can be found until God is in the middle of it. In fact, you may need to go out of your way to show God's grace to some of those against whom you harbor prejudice. You may need to put yourself in some uncomfortable places so God can heal you and them. Guys, our mission is to keep treating people as they really are in God's eyes. It doesn't matter who you think you are. It doesn't matter who they think you are. What matters is what God says that you are. That's our truth. That's our reality. And our mission is to keep treating other people as they really are in God's eyes. Every person that God brings into your life is a creature of God. A child of God loved by God desperate for the same grace that God has poured out on you God's dream for them is to drink from that grace as you have and those who do that will have something in common that makes what separates us absolutely insignificant out of the many God makes us one that's God's dream that's our mission Are you in?